You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from John um, chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, He is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives this testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we are thankful for your word. So now we pray, O Spirit, that you would lift our eyes to Jesus that we might see him in your word, that we might behold him, that we might love him, that we might follow him and worship him as the king that he is over our hearts and our lives, we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see all of you this evening. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the now four pastors here at Christ Church. Uh, If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you after over a taco, after this service. I recently watched the really, really interesting movie called The Founder. Uh, It's about Ray Kroc, who was a traveling milkshake mixer salesman who stumbled upon this hamburger stand in San Bernardino, California in 1954. This this burger stand was the model of family-friendly and efficient food service. And so he convinced the two brothers that owned this burger shop, the McDonald brothers, Uh, to allow him to begin franchising these McDonald's all over the Midwest. And I won't spoil the entire movie, but in the end, the brothers uh, basically have to give over whatever control they had left of the restaurant because Croc was the one with all the power. He was famous. He had stores in something like 17 states at that point. He had uh, the money. He was a millionaire even at this point in the late 60s. He uh, had the money to buy bigger and more powerful lawyers than the McDonald's could. So these brothers begrudgingly stepped aside and the only thing that they had left was a financial settlement and memories and regret. 
Transitions are part of our world. Uh, It happened for the McDonald's brothers. It happens in all of our lives. Very few of us watch TV the way that we did 10 years ago, right? That transition has happened. Like, when was the last time you actually channel surfed? Like, flipped through channels? Um, My guess is if you're under, like, 18, you've never done that in your life. Uh, I wonder if my youngest sons will even need to get a driver's license. I kind of think not, because their driverless car will take them everywhere. If you don't believe me, just Google what happened in Chandler, Arizona this week. Like, it's happening, and I, for one, can't wait. Uh, But uh, transitions happen every day, and not just in business, not just in industry. Last year, an old and broken-backed Tony Romo had to... uh, give his job over to the younger, stronger Dak Prescott. He just saw the writing on the wall. Uh, He got old a few months ago after winning 45 races in a row. Usain Bolt came in third at last August's World Championships, which like his reign was like for a decade and a half, right? And then he got old and it was over like that. People get older, people lose cultural importance, and then they're just forgotten. Well, after we hinted at this in chapter one, John the Baptist is going to see his cultural importance, his celebrity, transition away from himself and toward Jesus. But again, John the Baptist is more than happy for that to happen because that was his job all along. So we'll see this play out tonight in two parts, a transition of ministries and a transition of kingdoms. And it's my hope that at the end of chapter three here that John's gospel will confront us where we need to be confronted that for our joy, God will begin to wrestle our own kingdoms away from us and place us more confidently under the reign and rule of Christ. So a transition of ministries. To get our bearings, let's again just read this, uh, these first five verses, beginning in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to them, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So this, after this, the very beginning of verse 22, of course, is referring to Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus that we went through in the first half of chapter 3 last week. After that happened, Jesus goes out into the countryside where we find that Jesus himself has a baptism ministry. We find out in the next chapter, in verse 2, that Jesus himself is not baptizing, but his disciples were doing it. Like, can you imagine the pride and rivalry that would have come from some of these folks if you were actually baptized by Jesus, but then, like, your kid brother was just baptized by, like, some rando disciple named Philip or something, right? Like, but God in his grace, Jesus wisely uh, had his disciples doing his baptism. But anyway, we find out that Jesus and John are out there doing the same thing. They're baptizing. And a Jew, we read, uh, we don't know, we don't have any idea who this Jew is, uh, is out there talking with John's disciples about what baptism is and what it's for. Often Gentiles, even in the centuries prior to this, uh, those who were not Jews uh, and wanted to then align themselves with God's people would announce that they were becoming one with God's people by undergoing this 
ritual, this uh, public thing of baptism, of going under the water. But why would Jews in this day, why would they want and need to get baptized? Well, while baptism is a bit different on this side of the cross than it was in Jesus or John the Baptist's ministry, after all today we baptize, as we'll see, Lord willing, in just a few minutes, we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This was not happening here in these days. Uh, and we baptize to signify the forgiveness of sins on this side of the cross of Christ. This was, of course, on the before side of the cross. But nevertheless, this baptism, as Jesus announced, was a baptism of repentance. When a person recognized that their life had been lived with themselves at the center of their universe. When a person recognized that their life was currently at odds with God, the God who created them, and then that they desired to turn. They desired to turn from their former life and announce this change to others. So there was a bit of confusion with what was going on out there in the wilderness with John and Jesus. But these folks evidently did not believe that this ritual was a ritual that saved them made them right before God, or even marked them off as God's people. It was the first step to announcing to the community of God that there had been a change of heart, that there had been repentance, a turn, just as we talked and professed about what repentance was earlier in our service. But it's not necessarily the nature and role of baptism that's being highlighted in this text, is it? It's that their conversation then quickly turns to Jesus, they're debating what purification is, what baptism is, but then it quickly makes a shift to Jesus, whose name John's disciples seemingly can't even get themselves to say out loud, right? They say, that guy who was with you across the Jordan, that guy that you bore witness to, look, that guy over there, he's baptizing, and they're all going to him, that guy. That's like the Greek, I think, but uh, it appears that they are jealous of Jesus' growing ministry. They're jealous of his growing following. Just a few months ago, they were part of the biggest show in town, or more specifically, like out of town. But lots of people were coming out to be baptized by John, and they were part of it. They were just wrapped up in his celebrity. They were benefiting from their leader's popularity. It's like if they were part of like the 10 or 15 person like core launch team of John the Baptist's church plant. And within a couple of years, they had several thousands of people showing up to their main service. And then they had like nine or ten campuses all around town. John was a huge, huge deal. John's like likely pushing a million Twitter followers. And as a result, they themselves, his disciples, they themselves like have 80 or 90,000. That's amazing. Just being near him. Like the church growth experts are coming to the disciples and saying, what's John's special sauce? Like, if you don't, like, that's, that's like, people talk about that in church planting. So what's the special sauce? Uh, and they're coming to him and saying, how can we replicate what he's doing in Judea, out where we live, in like Egypt or Asia Minor? Or, in fact, maybe you, disciple of John, you've learned so much from him. Maybe you can just move to, like, Alexandria, where we are in Egypt, and you can start what he's done there in Judea, because you've seen and watched. But then Jesus shows up. And while there's still lots of people at all of their services and their campuses, it's like they're a third full. They're a third of what they were a few months ago. 
And because John's influence seems to be waning, there's this too. Their, their tweets used to get thousands of likes and retweets, and now it's like they're tweeting to an empty room. The lunches and the job offers have dried up. So, John, what are you going to do about it? This is not good. We're not as popular as we used to be. We've got to pick up our advertising. Maybe we can like offer iPads or gift cards to visitors this Sunday. Something to get them to come back. Something. What are you going to do? But then John the buzzkill answers in verse 27. He answers, a, ber- a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John says the reason that Jesus is receiving, receiving anything, much less more people to his ministry, is because Almighty God in heaven has deemed it to be that. He wants more people to go to him and to go from us. Now this has to be difficult for John's disciples, and it actually has to be difficult for John, knowing that he has a sinful human heart like yours and mine. No doubt part of the reason Jesus' ministry is so popular in the first place is because not only that John tilled a bunch of ground preparing people for Jesus' coming, but then he publicly endorsed him. No doubt the disciples are thinking, you and kind of we did all the hard work, and then he just swoops in and reaps the benefit from it all. But in correcting this kind of thinking, John says, have you forgotten what I've been preaching all along? You yourselves have heard me say over and over and over again that one greater than me is coming. And my ministry has always been about transitioning from mine to his. He describes himself as the friend of the, bar- of the bridegroom, which would have been someone like a best man in ancient Hebrew weddings. Before, during, and after the wedding ceremony, this friend of the bridegroom would have acted like a liaison between the bride and the bridegroom, the two families. One of his jobs was to escort the bride after the ceremony to the wedding chamber, where he would then stand guard outside of the chamber, making sure that no unwanted visitor was coming. But it would be dark, and so the bridegroom would then come and say, hey, I'm here, And then knowing his voice, because it's dark, he would let him in, close the door, and his job is done. The best man's job is done. His purpose is complete. He's arranged things leading up to the wedding, communicating between the families, finishing certain tasks throughout the ceremony, and then seeing to it that the bride and the bridegroom are properly cared for in their joining after the ceremony. John is saying, dude, what is with you guys? My job has always been to introduce and care for the bride as she is being introduced and given and joined to the bridegroom. She was never mine to begin with. My job is now done, and therefore this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. 
John is not the, the battered, battered and beaten McDonald brothers who is getting like strong-armed into handing over his business, his ministry to the all-powerful Jesus. His job was always to build a business and then give it to Christ. Jesus is the greatest thing imaginable. He's the gravitational center of the universe. He's the beginning and the end. He's the place where heaven and earth meet. He's the very temple of God. He is the purification for sins. Here, John's disciples and this random guy are debating about purification, and then they're perturbed that Jesus is getting the attention. The irony. John's entire life and ministry was about displaying the power and grace of Jesus Christ. And this is what we want to be about as a church as well. We've named our church after him. We want to be about his name, his power, his love, his grace. That we'll not only be happy to step out of the spotlight a bit so that he can come further in, but that we can actually like get behind the spotlight and turn it to him. That all might see all glory be to Christ. Not to us, but to Christ. As pastors... Clint and I, and now Ryan and Kyle, we want to be content with the possibility that if not one more person becomes a member here at Christ Church, if, if like giving dries up and we're not able to accomplish some of the things that we would have hoped for, but if people are coming to faith in Christ and pursuing membership elsewhere in the city, if Christ's name is becoming known in Albuquerque, his cleansing power is being experienced, but it's just happening somewhere else, praise God. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And that's a difficult place to get to in our hearts. Because our hearts, all of us, every human after Adam who shares in his rebellion and in his sinful longings, all of us are trying to build our own personal kingdoms so this passage doesn't just speak to ministry leaders or church philosophies. If Jesus didn't just come to give us a cleaner set of values, if Jesus didn't come to just give us some friends who are nice and will care for you in time of need, if Jesus didn't come to grant our wishes, but if instead he came, us, came to bring us life, if instead he came to wash us by his blood, to cleanse us from our sin by his death on the cross so that we might finally be given and experience a clean conscience. If he came to give us rest from endlessly and tirelessly trying to earn our way into God's acceptance because he's earned God's acceptance for us, if all of that is true, then every minute of our days and every minute of our lives ought to be, he must increase, but I must decrease. Every decision we make, should I take this job or that job? Should I do this to make that sale? He must increase, but I must decrease. Should I talk to that person on the bus? How should I talk to that person on the bus? Should I date this person? How should I date this person? How should I begin my day this morning? Reading and prayer how should I communicate with and serve my spouse today? How should I, or what should I do in parenting my kids today? How should I respond when my children are frustrating and disobedient? He must increase, but I must decrease. 
If the answer to any of those questions becomes or is my kingdom over his, I'm just going to keep increasing so that he'll decrease, crowding him out, increasing my own kingdom, then I'm free to choose whatever I like, whenever I want it. But if we've experienced his grace, then the rest of our lives become, day by day, a, a little less of me, a little more of him. Every day for the rest of our lives, a little less of me, a little more of him. A little more of look at Jesus and a little less of look at me. So if John's ministry, really his entire life, is a transition from himself to Christ, then the second section is really just an extension of that, a transition of kingdoms. Let's read again verses 31 through 36. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So after Jesus has told Nicodemus that he needs a second birth, a birth from above, and after telling him in verse 13 of chapter 3 that no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, now John the Baptist says the same thing, that Jesus has come from heaven. He is the word of God, come so that we can know the Father. We belong to the earth, but Jesus fully human and with a physical beginning, is also fully God with no divine beginning. While he has come to teach and tell us of heaven, the world does not listen. They don't receive his testimony. The world stands in opposition against Jesus, against heaven and against its creator. But verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Setting his seal is literally like you have a letter. And in the ancient way, you smash your signet ring into this seal that verifies that the contents of the letter are true. They are from the writer. You seal something to verify its truthfulness. So whoever believes in what Jesus says sets his seal, verifies that God is true. And what is, what is it that we are verifying the truthfulness about God by sealing him, by receiving him? Well, earlier in the chapter, that though the world stood in opposition to God, chapter 3, verse 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. How did he show the world that he loved the world, that he didn't allow it to continue in its condemned rebellion? Well, he sent his beloved son into the world to live and die for sinners, absorbing uh, his just wrath against their rebellion and putting it on his own son making former enemies, his own adopted sons and daughters. And John says that the words of Jesus are the words of the Father. For unlike himself, Jesus had the full measure of the Holy Spirit. Unlike 
John himself, being a man. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are completely one. To know one is to know the other. And while they are distinct in their persons, they are the same in their will. So John is saying, don't stay here with me. I'm just a man like all of you. Go to him. Why are you worried about my diminished ministry? This is the ministry of God himself on earth. Go to him. Be with him. Learn from him. Follow him. Serve him. Worship him. Because, verse 35, the Father has given all things into his hand. Or as Jesus himself says about himself in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He rules and reigns with the Father as God, as ruler of the cosmos. Don't you understand? Why are you still worrying about if people come and hear me preach? He's the ruler of the cosmos. We want them to go to him. And so, because of all this, John concludes with something that causes our modern sensitivities and inclinations to bristle a bit. In verse 36, he says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We like that first part, don't we? That Jesus is a good Savior. He gives eternal life. He provides meaning to just a whole lot of people in the world today. He is certainly a way to know God. But it's that second part that we don't like, isn't it? Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now fortunately, we have many, many more weeks to think through this issue, the so-called exclusivity of Christ, that Jesus is the exclusive way to know God. This isn't just something that John the Baptist teaches in, his go- or in this gospel, but Jesus is going to, as we saw last week, and he will continue to make this claim about himself over and over and over and over again in the gospel of John. That he is the way, not a way to know God. But for now, I'll just say this. I've, re- I've read someone say in commenting on Jesus' claim to be the door or the gate Uh, In John 10, the way of access to God, our modern ears will hear, wait, there's only one door? While the entire thrust and astonishing surprise of Scripture asks, wait, there's really a door? There's a door to know God? There's a way to access Him? He has provided a way for us to know Him? Yes. And His name is Jesus. You don't have to remain separated from God any longer. He has made a way to reconcile sinners to himself. He's from above. He's not a teacher, just teaching the things and philosophies of this world. He is from heaven, teaching us and showing us things that we could have never dreamed or imagined. Unlike every other world religion, man-made religion, that shows us things or tries to teach us a way to reach heaven The gospel of Christ is heaven reaching to us. Unlike every other world religion whose founding teacher or prophet is dead and decomposed in the ground, Christianity's Christ is alive today and he is reigning and ruling over the cosmos. And it's his resurrection life that he offers us today. Perhaps for some of you today, for the very first time, he's offering his resurrection life to cleanse you of your sin. 
through faith in his life and death for you. Friend, hear me. Apart from him. And like every single one of us in this room, apart from Christ, you stand justly condemned with the wrath of God still on your head and your soul for your sinful rebellion. Like all of us, apart from Christ. Repent and believe. Let his wrath and judgment for your sin now be taken and absorbed on Christ himself. He did not send Christ into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You must be born again. Receive his life from above through faith. Let today be the day of turning to him. We'd we'd love to talk to you after this service about about this profession of faith that we read earlier, what, what repentance is, what it means to turn from yourself and to Christ, to have your sins forgiven. Come and talk to us. Let, let today be the day. We'd love to talk through these things with you. For the rest of you, the rest of us who have already come to him by his grace, his resurrection life is also for us today. And he wants to give us more and more and more of it that in learning to follow Jesus, we might more and more and more learn to unfollow ourselves. That he must increase, but I must decrease. A little less of me and a little more of Jesus. A little less look at me and a little more look to him. May it be so, for his sake, for our own joy, and for his kingdom and not our own, Let's ask for his help in that together. Our Father, we do thank you that you have not left us justly condemned in our rebellion. That you did not condemn the world, but that you loved the world. A world that stood in opposition to you. And you sent your own son, Jesus, to teach us, to show us, to live for us, to die for us to be raised to new life for us, that we might be united to him in faith. Father, we pray for those who have perhaps not come to you by faith, have experienced your grace and your cleansing power through the blood of Christ. We pray that tonight might be the day of repentance, that tonight might be the day of life. Father, we pray for all of us here, that we might decrease and that you might increase for our joy and for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.